Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everybody, it's Mike. I wanted to give a couple of prefaces to today's episode before we get into our conversation with Michael Roth about Affair on 8th Avenue. The first is that we now know who that song was written about. When Michael and I were talking, I did not know who the object of the song was, but since then, I've learned on some online research that Marin Thomas was her name. She was an actress. She was a star of an influential underground film called Sins of the Fleshapoids from 1965. Uh, so I wanted to let you know that fast-breaking news, we did find out who the song was written for. Also wanted to let you know that since our last episode, I've opened a shop on Etsy that features the logo of the podcast on several different items of swag that you might want to take a look at. Let me give you the URL for it. It's etsy.com slash shop slash chr podcast store. Let me give that to you one more time. Etsy.com slash shop slash chr podcast store. I hope you'll visit, and I hope you'll check out some of our items. Okay, happy listening. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? The perfume that she wore was from some little store on the downside of town, and it lingered on long after she'd gone. I remember it well. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Panama City, Florida, Michael Roth. Michael, I know we've been talking about this for a long time, so welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. It was very nice of you to invite me. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you. So, since this is your first visit with us, I have to ask you the hazing question, which is, how did you first get into Lightfoot's music? Well, I think my first exposure, when I was in grade school, I, I was a fan of Peter, Paul, and Mary, because, <laughs> you know, this was the Puff of the Magic Dragon days. <laughs> but uh, they did In the Early Morning Rain. And it wasn't until high school that I uh, started learning guitar and really getting into that. But... Um, from the Peter, Paul, and Mary uh, songbook, they had the tablature to uh, In the Early Morning Rain. So that was like one of the first songs that I learned, and I really liked that song a lot. But uh, what really made me a fan of, of uh, Lightfoot was, you know, If You Could Read My Mind, which came out during that period of high school days. I don't know what that was, the 60s, I guess. I don't know what uh, what year that was. Anyway, <laughs> I was very attracted to him, the, the poetry of the lyrics in that song, which I think is really one of his top two or three songs, really, you know, in terms of craftsmanship and just the beauty of the song and the structure of it. I was a Gordon Lightfoot fan 
from you know among many other songwriters that I that I loved, but he was definitely one of the big influences on me. The energy of his songs, his voice is great. What is it more generally that you like about his music? You've mentioned the two songs that really hit you when you were in high school, but if you could sum it up, what do you like about Lightfoot's music? Well, I like the energy of his songs. I like the the sound of his voice. He just seems to have a way of really engaging the listener into what he's talking about. The interesting stories that he comes up with, those are the things. Of course, he had a lot of competition back then. <laughs> Some of that was yeah. like the of. You know, it was interesting. I was just watching, uh, if you could read my mind, uh, the documentary of Lightfoot. And they talk a lot about that, how there was all this interaction between Dylan, which he, who we became friends with, of course. And, of course, Dylan influenced everybody, changed things for everybody. And then the Beatles, of course. It was just an era of great stuff. And it, it really spurred him to start really writing and to write better songs. Personally, he, he kind of reminds me of John Ven Denver, who was, I think, an underappreciated singer-songwriter. You know, they both have those clear, strong voices and, and uh, great melodies, but they didn't really get the, the real recognition they deserved. Although Lightfoot did uh, achieve some real status there, not just in, in Canada, but in the United States, which was, which was amazing. I think that was one of the things that really made him stand out was, as a Canadian writer, he was able to, you know, compete head-to-head -head with uh, American songwriters. Well, you know, you mentioned John Denver, and the, the two of them did have a bit of a relationship. And I think there are some certain similarities between the kind of work that they did. Lightfoot didn't get as lampooned quite as much as John Denver did, but both enormous talents, you know, musically, both vocally and instrumentally. Have you seen Lightfoot live, and what was the experience like? Well, a long time ago, and honestly, I don't remember when or specifically where it was, but it was in a gym, I think, at a university at Georgetown, and um, it was just him and Red Shea. It wasn't like one of these huge auditoriums or anything, but it was pretty packed, and I wasn't too far from him. And I, I thought it was just uh, very interesting. Of course, I, I was just there, you know, as a fan and just enjoying it. So whatever he was going to do was probably be what I liked. One of the things that struck me was how short he was. I didn't realize he's not a, like a midget or anything, but and I'm not a big person either, so I always uh, appreciate <laughs> that when I see somebody who's not six foot four and you know. Right. And and you know what else really impressed? Me? I think I mentioned that Red Shea, his backup guitarist. I really noticed him at that. Just the way he was able to carry the whole orchestration of the song with just a guitar. That was really impressive. He obviously had good tastes and side musicians. Oh, absolutely. And he's always taken a lot of pride in the backup bands that he's had. So no question about that. Have you had the pleasure of meeting Lightfoot yet? No, I uh, never have actually shook his hand or talked to him, even though I probably could have when I saw him in, in concert. But I was kind of a shy person and, and you know, didn't didn't usually do that sort of thing and wouldn't, wouldn't even know what to say, you know. It's like, oh, I like your stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that kind of says it all, and there's probably nothing we could say to him that wouldn't be a cliche to some degree or another. Yeah. Well, today we're talking about Affair on 8th Avenue, and I was curious, this is a song that is very pretty, but it is describing something that a lot of people probably don't consider to be a good thing. So I guess what I'm wondering is, why did you enjoy the song? Why did you want to talk about it today? Well, um, you know, in looking through his songs, that one I had never heard before. And when I listened to it, I, I was struck by how, how pretty it, 
it was. I mean, he, that's one of the things that I like Denver. You know, he, he is really able to come up with these gorgeous melodies, you know, just one after the other. And this was definitely one of them. And most of his songs are very energetic. He was really into that, you know, driving rhythm thing. So this was a little different. I mean, there are other songs of his that are uh, soft and delicate, but this was one, they're not as common, I think, as more like the driving story songs. And I liked the poetry of it, you know, I liked the way the story was told. I just thought it was a beautiful song. You know, maybe I'll get a chance to learn it someday. I don't play covers, right, you know, myself very often. Although I keep telling myself I should because that's what everybody wants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. But that would be one I would do. That's the thing is, when you know, when I did covers, when I, you know, uh, and when I do them now, I'd probably pick the ones that nobody heard so they wouldn't know the difference between, you know, the original songs. <laughs> ah, clever. Okay. I mean, not, I'm not in order to do that, but just that, you know, <laughs> instead of picking the, the top hits, I'd be picking some obscure thing that they never heard. So. Right. Yeah. Not <laughs> trying to purpose. steal not trying to steal somebody else's thunder, but on the other hand, you know, they're going to tune in and say, oh, I haven't heard this before, you know, yeah. as opposed to something you've heard on the radio over and over again. I think for me, it's a stark recollection of what apparently actually happened, kind of a tawdry affair. It's very simple. It's very beautiful. And he manages to not be cliche about it. I mean, there's no you know, illusions about, okay, this is forever love, or this is the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and he remembers it so vividly mm -hmm. that in less than three minutes, he really did tell the whole story. I mean, he could have probably written a novel about this thing, but in less than three minutes, he's said everything that needed to be said about the relationship. One commenter on YouTube said, this song makes me remember something that never happened to me. Yeah. And that kind of says it all. Yeah, I remember seeing that. And I, that is a really great quote. <laughs> yeah. Without trying to delve too much into your personal life, do you have any anecdotal stories about the song? Well, I tried researching this song, and it's really difficult to find anything. And it was dropped from his album when it first came out. And I, I kind of think that, I mean, he talks about, you know, now about wishing he had never done That's What You Get for Loving Me. Right. You know, feel, he feels embarrassed about it. And I kind of think that maybe he was feeling that about this song at the time. And since, you know, it was never, as far as I know, it got really promoted or anything. So I do think it really um, was a little more confessional than uh, maybe he retrospectively intended, you know, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think you're right. And he hasn't performed it very much in his repertoire. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Is there a good setting for you to listen to this? Could you listen to it anytime, any place, any kind of weather? Or do you feel like the best setting to listen to it would be in a certain place, a certain time, certain climate, whatever? Well, you know, I think it's a song, you know, if it came on the road, you'd, 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 you wouldn't turn it off. But, you know, driving through a snowstorm, it might be a nice song to listen to. Something where, you know, you don't have a lot of distractions around. You're not going to want to get up and dance. Oh, no. No, you want to sit and listen to it and think about those words and, you know, what he's trying to say and everything. I don't know if it's totally confessional, but we could talk about that. Uh, yeah, we will. I think for me... I always think of the beginning of it being on a rainy day and 
if it were a movie, you'd have the camera giving this external shot of this building on 8th Avenue in New York City. And they kind of close in on a window. And through the window, you see Gordon and this woman. Yeah. But it would be upstairs. I mean, it wouldn't be on the ground floor. So that's where my mind always goes when I hear this song. And so that's why I think on a day like today, when we're recording in Northern California, it is raining. Yeah. Fairly hard. And I did listen to Lightfoot on the way home from work today, and I'll probably play this song a little bit later because it's just the perfect setting for it for my own psyche. But yeah, researching the song, I found out a couple of things. Lightfoot did meet this woman at the cellar door in Washington, D.C., which was a club where he was playing with Red and I guess with John Stockfish. He found out that she was a waitress at the Playboy Club in New York City. Hmm. And... During that tour, or maybe at the end of the tour, he spirited away from his bandmates and flew up to New York to see her, and the two of them had a rendezvous in her apartment. It's not clear whether she was married. We know that he was, and so he was the one having the affair, although we both know it takes two to tango. That's all I could find out. Did I miss anything? No, that that was, I, saw, I probably read the same thing you did in it. In some ways, you know what this reminds me of is there's a song by Leonard Cohen called uh, Chelsea Hotel, I think. That's, in a sense, a parallel about an affair. Of course, that was with a, a famous person. I guess she's dead, so we can say Janis Joplin uh, apparently okay. was the person. It's, of course, a very, very different kind of scenario. This is not, this is just somebody who is alluring just because of who she is, not because of any uh, accoutrements of, of fame or notoriety or fortune or talent as we know well and not only that but i mean the woman that gordon apparently had the affair with if she's come forward and said hey that song was about me i haven't found it and i think we probably would have known by now right we'll be right back to our conversation with michael roth about affair on 8th avenue but first a word from a podcast partner or two Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. Hello, I'm JT, a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained. I've spent over 35 years researching and learning about a wide range of subjects, from UFOs and cryptids to ghosts and the supernatural, from hidden and lost treasures to mankind's mysterious past, and all other things mysterious and Fortean. Each week, I'll bring you some relevant and interesting articles in this genre, as well as a different topic, some you may be familiar with, but many you most likely will never have known existed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride, and let me be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained on the paranormal sun. I think what's alluring about the song, though, is that it's just that she is just a person who, in and of herself, her very nature is something that's mysterious and attractive, and that's what he's trying to capture. And he does a beautiful job of it, and that's probably a good jumping off place for us to get into the lyrics now. The perfume that she wore was from some little store on the downside of town, which 
to me kind of implies that it was cheap perfume. This is not Chanel number no. five or whatever. And it lingered on long after she'd gone. I remember it well. And we know that odor is one of the most powerful memory triggers. I mean, psychologists have said this. So it's possible that he smelled it in different contexts years later in a different part of the world. He smells the same perfume and thinks, oh my gosh, my mind's going back to this place in New York City. And she showed me her treasures of paper and tin. And I can't figure out what kind of treasures would be made of those two. Do you have any ideas about what he's talking about? Back in, that, in those days, you know, that was the 70s, you know, it was real countercultural things. So I know I lived in Santa Fe back then, and so the counterculture was very strong there. There was, I mean, part of the community, the, the Easy Rider people were, <laughs> were there. Mm -hmm. And so you had, I mean, all kinds of, of handmade art things and so on. And I think what the key to this is they're treasures of paper and tin. It doesn't matter really what they were. It's that she treasured them. Uh, I know people made things out of tin, like little candle stands and things like that, you know, so you had all, all manner of things and knickknacks that you'd find. There was a place in Santa Fe that sold Mexican art. And so you'd have all these little knickknacks and things that were very cheaply made and everything. But they're curious. They're curios, you know. Yeah. And I think that's what it was, you know. But I think the key to it is that she made them valuable by Which is, her So treasures. the personal pronoun, her treasures, yes, is the operative thing there. Okay. Yeah. And we played a game only she could win. And it made me think that she doesn't have as much invested in what's going on here as he does. If she isn't married, she isn't cheating on anyone. He is married, so he's cheating on Brita. He probably feels a little bit of remorse about it. You mentioned the idea of being confessional, which implies that you're coming clean about something. She kind of comes out of it relatively unscathed. So when you think about the game, I think he's probably speaking metaphorically here because he doesn't mention that we sat down, we played chess like they did in the Thomas Crown affair yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it was the game of love, you know, and uh, that's, I think, he, I think he was speaking of it metaphorically as a game. I don't think they were actually playing a game. But I think there are some people who are just... They're in charge of their lives, you know, people like Lightfoot who were, you know, had achieved so much. I don't know that he had as much control of his life as she did. You know, she could choose who to be with or not. You know, it wasn't like something was going to happen. The opportunities were going to open up for her or something like that. She was happy with her life. She was content with who she was. And I think that that's like the where the real power is. You know, it's like a magical power in a way. So she didn't need him. That's the key to it, I think, is she didn't need him, but he wanted her. I like the way you said this idea of she has some sort of a choice, whereas he, clearly he's there of his own volition also with her, but he's also got obligations to the guys yeah. in the band. He's got contracts he needs to right. meet. I mean, she's at the Playboy Club, which I guess was something of a prestige item in those days, but... It's sure. not like she couldn't walk away from it and find a waitressing job some other place. Right. And then a little later on, he says, and she told me a riddle I'll never forget. And she left with the answer I've never found yet. How long, said she, can a moment like this belong to someone? And I wonder about this. I think 
is she implying that this isn't going to last long? She knows that this is a one night stand and she kind of saying, look, this is after today. You're going to be going back to where you were and we're both going to go on with our life. Did you have any thoughts on that particular part of the song? Yeah, I think in its essence, you have, you know, somebody who's saying is, I'm not here to try to establish a relationship with you. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm happy. This is just something, everything in life is fleeting. The nature of life is fleeting. So if we can have some pleasure in this, let's do it. If not, then you're free to leave. Uh, I think that's really what it comes down to. I do find these lines to be a mixture of really nice poetry and some sort of, I would think of, I think like faux profundity, you know, in a sense. Some of the lines, you know, when you're writing a song, sometimes you, you write something that sounds really neat, but doesn't really mean anything, you know? And I think that there's a little touch of this here. He's trying to create a riddle that makes us think about these things. And if he narrowed it down to just, you know, um, how can anyone own a moment? How can a moment like this belong to someone? How can you hold on to a moment, a passing thing? It's very Japanese, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, like the samurai, the, the fleeting nature of, of life, you know. You can't hold on to it. You know, you have to flow with it. And that's as close as you're going to get to it. And the line, though, about we must almost be born. Yeah. I think that's a little stretch. You know, I think he was trying a little too hard to sound really deep. To me, it just kind of sounded a little off. But somebody else might have some great insight into that, that, uh, you know, I, I'm not getting. I just thought he was trying to be a songwriter and write something really cool. Attention, that's Carefree Highway listeners, please be in touch with me at the address I'll give you at the end of the show if you've got an insight into this. Yeah, I couldn't figure out what that line meant either. It's a nice way of rounding out that yeah. particular verse, but it's really inscrutable. You know, I really don't know if he was saying. I think inscrutable is right, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you should ask me what secrets I hide, I'm only your lover, don't make me decide. Now, that kind of implies that this woman has a lot of secrets that she, the implication is, okay, you have to choose what secrets I'm supposed to be saying. Maybe about other lovers she's had, maybe about something other that's kind of sorted from her past. Does it have to do with maybe not keeping the secret of her tryst with Gordon? Well, we know that apparently this remains a secret. Gordon certainly never said anything about it. And I think now we're coming up on 55 years since this happened and no one has come forward that I know of and said, okay, it was me. But it does bring up the question, is there an answer to the riddle? And I think you kind of touched on that. How long can it belong to us? Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's a riddle as much as it is a rhetorical question, meaning, of course, we can't hold on to this moment. It's going to be passing and it'll be over in a matter of hours and you'll be on your way. Right. And I, I think, you know, what she's saying is uh, trying to find my secrets isn't really going to deliver anything of great value to you. Don't think about that. It's like you're taking yourself away from the moment. Here we are together. That's the important thing. Focus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. And I don't know how much encouragement he would have needed, but 
It's yeah. a story for another day, I suppose. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, the song originally was on Back Here on Earth. It was his fourth original album. It came out in 1968. It was the eighth track on the record, and I think it was the second song on the B-side. You mentioned that it was not high energy, although it's a, certainly a beautiful song, but predictably yeah. it was not released as a single. The album went to number 21 in Canada, and that was the highest he'd done up to that time uh, on the Canadian charts or tied for it. It did not chart here in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in Australia or in New Zealand. And I know that there were two recordings of this. We'll discuss that in a second or two. But what's your favorite musical aspect of the song? It's such a, a beautiful melody and the way it rolls got a very lilting feeling to it. You know, you're talking about the kind of the edge of the cusp of the folk era where you still had a lot of these these old melodies, you know, around, and he, he still carried that within him, you know, that kind of tune. And it made it modern enough, but I think that's really the attraction. You know, in the old days, you know, people would just be singing a song, so everything was the melody. Yeah. So that that's kind of what it was for me. Plus, it has the color of it see like blue and black and you know and dark colors but uh with the hints of light around not quite van gogh's starry night but you know something along those lines i think of uh edward hopper's nighthawks at the diner that's a little too bright you know yeah i mean if you're having an affair it's probably not something you want to have i mean although i like that the yeah. image and I love that painting, but I I, I yeah. think I know the kind of message you're kind of saying here. It's maybe that neighborhood though. Oh yeah, it might be like around the corner, just outside exactly. the border of the painting. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there were two things that I really loved about this: the simple lead that Red Shea played at the beginning of the song. That yeah. you know, which was just it's very very simple, but it was just a perfect, and it descended so that. I don't know if this was conscious or not, but it, it brings you down to earth mm-hmm. by the fact that it's descending and also it's not trying to be overly complicated. Right. And then the other thing that I loved was the chord progression. It's been many, many years since I've played it, but I believe it goes from E minor to D to A minor to B minor to C major seven. Yeah. And I love that chord change from the B minor into the C major seven, which is kind of a jazzy chord. Um, But I've used it in that transition and some of the stuff that I've written too. So, you know, I really enjoyed that. Well, he has a way of, of, in a simple melody, he'll have a way of interjecting a a different chord that just kind of, it's startling in a way, but it's also, it makes you remember the song, you know, in a lot of ways, although I can't really think of one of them. That, that <laughs> you know, he'll do that. He'll just like a, bring in a, a different chord change than the usual pattern. So it's a little unexpected. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of a good songwriter is that, it, you, you know, brings in the unexpected. Also a good lyricist, which he does that here, too. Oh, absolutely. And you talked about unexpected chords. I mean, he throws in an F chord in the chorus, so to speak. Mm-hmm which was a neat little change also. So, I mean, those are two examples just in the same song of the kind of thing that we're talking about. I liked the steel guitar that was on the Gord's Gold version of it, but I didn't think the song hung on that particular piece of instrumentation. I thought you could have it or not, that it didn't make the song and it didn't break the song. Yeah. I'm not a 
expert at production. And I didn't get a chance to listen to the old version, so I can't compare them. But um, I think that the spareness of production on this song is a good thing. It's not overly produced. It's not overly done. It's not wall of sound kind of thing, you know. Oh, yeah. Phil Spector, the saint. <laughs> Definitely. We'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Roth about Affair on 8th Avenue. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, the Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Books. Do you like classic albums? Technically, like, you know, the 20th century albums, um, such as, like, Beatles, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Rolling Stones. I've only had Beatle episodes so far, however, I'll be doing more. But welcome to my show, or rather, hey, welcome to Check Out My Show. <laughs> um, all those years ago, a classic album podcast with the dipping sauce. Um, as you can see, the Harry George Harrison reference. Um, I review classic albums, um, not of those the likes of Beethoven, the likes of the Beatles and Rolling Stones, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, or what have you. <laughs> um, so yeah, check it out. It's every Monday, um, and I do albums, conspiracies, songs, all that jazz. So just check it out. All those years ago, a classic album podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> You talked about the sparseness of it, and on the original, Lightfoot was playing six-string and vocals, Red Shea was playing lead acoustic, and then John Stockfish was playing bass, so it doesn't get much more stripped down than that. And as we have said, it was also on Gord's Gold, the double LP, but they took it off the CD, and it wasn't digitally released until 2010. So when I finally got the CD when I was in college, I noticed that they'd left that song off of the CD. And I thought, wow, why did they take that one off? Now, I understand that in those days, there was only so much room on a CD for anything. And I accept that. But any ideas about why they chose that one to take off rather than something else? So thinking that that maybe that's because... On second thought, maybe I shouldn't have done that song, you know, maybe. Oh, okay. You know, maybe he didn't really want to push that song so much. Mm -hmm. He did rearrange the lyrics a little bit for the re-recording. And I do think that the lyric progression that you have on the Gord's Gold is a better narrative. It feels a little bit more sequential than the lyric arrangement he had on the original recording. 
He has played the song just a very few times, 10 times altogether. The first one was just up the road from me at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. And then the most recent one uh, was at in Lenox, Massachusetts at the Tanglewood Music Center in July of 76. But that's it. He hasn't brought it out since then. And do you think that's because it's too much of a confessional song or is it because he just has too big a catalog? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it is both, you know. Well, you know what it's like to put together a set list and you have your favorites and so on. You know what people want to hear and that's another big driver. And so I think, you know, between it's like, oh, do they really want to hear this? Do I really want to play this? Do I, you know, you often cut out songs that you really like in favor of the hits or you have a curve in your performance, you know, uh, dynamics, you know, you want to bring it up and down and up and down. And um, so you've got to pick songs that have a variety of things. And he always struck me as a guy that really favored the driving rhythms. Even if it was folky, you know, it's still very rhythmic, very driving, energetic. So there are all kinds of considerations. I don't know why he did decide those things, but um, I, I'm sure it has something to do with that. And possibly because, like I said, he might not have wanted to really promote it after the fact. Yeah, I think you're probably right. There have been three official covers on this. The Brothers Four, that group was mostly known for doing Green Fields, Peter Isaacson, and Michael Thompson. And I'm wondering if you have heard any of those covers and if you have any thoughts on them. No, I actually haven't. I actually prefer to hear Gordon do his own stuff. Uh, even though other people do some nice covers of him, I think he usually does the best. So, you know, I'm not familiar with those. Th that was kind of almost before my time, really. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, and I have to be confessional here, too. It's before my time also, but when I f was first getting into folk music, I had a mixtape that I had bought, and the first song on the second side of it was Green Fields, and my dad and I were driving around someplace, yeah. and he said, oh, yeah, they played that a lot when Kennedy was assassinated or something. Right. So my only context for that particular thing is what my father God rest his soul, told me about that particular song. I'm with you that the cover thing, I'm not a huge fan of covers that other people have done of Gordon's songs. That being said, I think if John Stewart had been able to cover this before he died, I think he could have done an okay version of it. Yeah. But I don't know if he would want to do a song that was that intimate. And he certainly wouldn't want to talk about something that because he'd been happily married and was happily married, I think, for about 50 years to Buffy. But I, for some reason, I think his feelings or the way he approaches a song might have been appropriate for this. Any other thoughts on this song? Because I want to talk a little bit about you and your music, but any other thoughts you have on this song before we move on? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that I think this is also pretty important, that songs are fiction. And I remember seeing that in his documentary that they mentioned that uh, was it Song for a Winter Night, which is like so Canadian and, you know, so like everybody resonated with that. But it was, I think he wrote it in a, like, I think it was a Cleveland apartment or something. Yes. Yes. Detroit. I, I can't remember what it was. It was like a middle, you know, inner city apartment kind of in thing. In the summer. Know? In the summer. So he just imagined this thing, you know, and songwriters do that. You know, I mean, that's just 
kind of the thing is you write, it's basically your imagination that you're using. You might draw on material from your life. You might draw on material from a, an occurrence or a person, but you are basically making up a story. So the real value of a song is not how much it tells the, uh, you know, the historical facts, although those can be important for some songs, but it's really how good of a picture did he convey of this feeling of this incident, this encounter? And can does it resonate with you in some way emotionally? And, and that's what you're kind of going for. You're not really trying to recreate every uh, pixel of the, uh, the room or whatever, the person or the twinkle in their eye and everything, every detail. And, you know, you're trying to create an emotion. You're trying to create a scenario. So you, you embellish, you draw on that, but you don't necessarily tell that story. You tell the story that you want people to hear. Yeah. And music in its essence is about feeling and yes. the kind of feeling that you have when you're writing it or performing it is much more important than whether you get the facts straight. More important than the feeling that the listener has. Yes. Yeah. Well, Michael, you're also a singer songwriter. Can you tell us a little bit about your music, what you've been working on recently and where our listeners can find you both online and in person? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I've been, you know, doing this for, I don't know, 50 years or so, you know, in different ways, but I, my singer songwriter career was mainly interrupted by life for a long time. I did some very interesting things in my life and, and, uh, they were all worth doing, but, um, uh, I retired about five years ago. So since that time I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, go back and do this cause this is what I really want to do. So I, I have been uh, just an independent singer-songwriter, kind of folk Americana. I've had a lot of songwriting awards, which is nice for contests, you know. And, uh, I mean, I've had a couple things on the radio, but, you know, I mean, nothing by Tim McGraw or anything like that, you know, just uh, just my stuff. Um, right now, I, I did a major relocation from New Mexico to Panama City, Florida, so I'm getting reintegrated to the community there. I got a, actually a gig tomorrow at the public library, which is really nice because they're just starting a concert series and they asked me to kick it off. So that's great. Saturday, I'll be playing at the Dallas Songwriters Association for their awards ceremony because I, I have a song in that game there. And you can watch it online if you find the Dallas Songwriters Association Saturday starting at noon central time. And so various other things like that. You can find me, uh, Michael R.J. Roth. If you can spell that, you can find, you know, michaelrjroth.com or easyheroes.com, and I have a few CDs out that are just guitar vocal things. My latest one is called The Ruins of Our Age, and that's probably a, a nutshell, I think. Now, you said you don't do a whole lot of covers, but would you say that Lightfoot has influenced the music that you have done or the style in which you play? Well, definitely. I mean, he came along at an early time, so he was definitely an influence in the way I kind of approached the song or felt about a song, you know. Like I said, I have, you know, many, many influences, but he was definitely an early one. When the early ones, you know, it's like a language. That's the accent that you adopt, you know. And, mm -hmm. so, and strangely enough, he's the person that people most often compare me to vocally, although, honestly, I don't hear it, and he is 10 times better singer than I am. So that's always kind of struck me. I thought, well, that's great, because I, I really like Gordon Lightfoot. So mm -hmm. if I remind them of him, that's great, because they obviously like him, too. And they say, you know, Johnny Cash or 
uh, you know, Leonard Cohen, just somebody gruff, you know, somebody whose voice has been dragged through the dirt. But I mean, his, his is, is very pristine and pretty. Uh, I'm not. Anyway, that's just a little side thing. Nobody's saying that I'm the second new word in Lightfoot. I am definitely not. But uh, yeah, I, he was he was definitely an influence on what I did. I think, like I said, like an early accent. You know, that's the kind of you talk that way because that's what you learned. That's how you learned how to talk. Yeah, I'm having fun and liking it and getting around and playing different places. Uh, you know, virtually. You know, COVID was great for me and for a lot of us because it opened up the internet to us performing. You know, I did a virtual tour around the country, you know. I was playing California about a week ago, you know. and <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was playing an hour ago, and now I'm playing in Texas or someplace like that. That's fantastic. Well, Michael, we've been talking about this for ages, and I'm glad that we finally got it now committed to a podcast. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time tonight for sharing your thoughts on this song, and I hope we can have you back again sometime real soon. Well, thank you. I, and I, it was a real pleasure for me being on here and talking with you. And uh, so, yeah, anytime. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode will feature my guest, Eileen Massover, and she and I will be discussing Gordon's song, Restless, from the Waiting For You album, and that episode will be coming out in early February. Until then, for Michael Roth, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.